Hello and welcome to Warwick's Classics and Discussion podcast. Medical systems often resorted to constructing a classical past in order to shape and legitimize current medical theory and practice. This wish to forge a classical tradition appears to be a truly global and diachronic phenomenon. Greek doctors in particular served as a model of reference for many variegated uh, cultures and societies. In 2nd century Rome, 10th century Baghdad, 16th century Florence and 18th century London, physicians used Hippocrates as a medical authority and deferred to him as the father of medicine. Other classical authors emerge in various contexts. Avicenna, called Ibn Sina in Arabic, became the prince of physicians during the medieval period in the Latin West and Arabic and Persian-speaking East. The Indian and Chinese medical systems selected and constructed their own classics. Moreover, even today, the appeal uh, to a classic uh, such as Avicenna can sanction medical practice in so-called traditional health systems found in the Middle East, Africa or India. But what does it mean to be a medical classic? How do different cultures forge their own medical tradition through references to classical authors? And how does medical classicism impact on current health practices? To explore these issues, David Arnold and I are organizing a conference on medicine and classicism in a comparative perspective. It will take place at the Warburg Institute on the 13th and 14th of November 2009. David has joined me today to discuss the topic of classicism in medical systems from Europe to India. Uh, so David, uh, let me begin by uh, asking you, um, classicism, medicine, what do you mean by uh, classicism in medicine? Well, for me it has many different meanings. Uh, it's partly the use of certain texts, which we see to be classical texts, those which have been part of the accepted canon of what medical works are about. So essentially we're talking about a literate tradition of medical ideas and practices in which certain texts have a particularly revered status. And can you give uh, examples for this? I mean, what would be like a medical classic and how would it influence medical practice? I mean, how, do, how does that work? Well, if we're talking about the European tradition, then the works by or associated with Hippocrates and Galen are particularly significant in that context and they had a wide influence on the classical world, but also in subsequent medical practices and ideas in Europe and the Middle East. But we can also recognize the existence of classical works in the medical traditions of China, Japan, India, and so on. Uh, again, we're talking about particular texts, which were perhaps produced at a relatively early date, but also often modified and adapted by later authors. And those texts remain in many ways the source of authority for those medical traditions. You, you cite a particular text, you refer to a particular text as giving you an indication of how you can identify a disease, how you can treat that disease, how you can see that disease as part of a wider physical and cultural environment. So basically uh, what's happening here is that there's, let's say, a text from the 5th century BC, as in the case of Hippocrates or let's say from the 4th century or 2nd, 3rd, 4th century AD, if we talk about 
Sushkarutas, uh, Samhita Sushkarutas uh, compendium in India. And these texts, uh, I mean, they are old, they are written in a language which is difficult to understand, maybe. They can be interpreted, uh, and then people go back to them in order to legitimate their own practice, uh, to legitimate their own theory, that a fair description? Yes, it, it can work in a variety of different ways. I don't think there's any one single uh, oh. explanation for how this works. But as you say, quite often a classical text will be written in a language which in itself is seen to be classical, mm. like Sanskrit, Sanskrit or Greek or whatever it might be. So in, in a sense, it is a rather elitist and specialised tradition because only a limited number of people will actually be able to read that language, mm. have access to the particular works, and so on. Mm. But it can be a modified tradition, shall we say, in as much as some of those works may be translated into the vernaculars. They might still retain something of the authority of their original authors and texts, but they then become part of a much more mainstream Mm. system of medical ideas and practices. So when a Greek text gets translated into Arabic, or when an Arabic text, let's say, Avicenna's Ibn Sina's Canon of Medicine, when that gets translated into Urdu, um, Hindi, or whatever you want to call it, then uh, this would modify the ideas? Yes, and uh, And, and it was an accepted practice, I think, for people to write commentaries, in which they thought they were doing their readers a favour by explaining what Hippocrates Mm. or some other author Mm. actually meant, but also perhaps recognising the fact that there were diseases which weren't described in those Mm. particular texts, or there were therapeutic substances Mm. which were not available to those ancient authors Mm. which were now available. So actually the classical tradition is not a static one. Mm. It is one which is subject to constant reinterpretation. And reinvention. And reinvention. Uh, One one great example, obviously, is Galen. So Galen is a second century AD physician, as you know. Um, And what he does is uh, he takes this figure, Hippocrates, who lived in the 5th century BC, about whom we know next to nothing nowadays, and about whom even Galen probably knew very little. And what he does is he takes certain texts attributed to Hippocrates, such as on the sacred disease. He says, that's a good text, and I'll write a commentary on it. And I say, Hippocrates meant ABC, meant this and that. I mean, one of the ideas Galen was particularly uh, favorable about uh, or in love with was the idea of the four humors. That's on the nature of man, another work by Hippocrates. So he finds an idea, four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, in on the nature of man. He writes a commentary on it and explains how Hippocrates should be seen. So he legitimizes his own medical ideas by going back to Hippocrates by writing a commentary on Hippocrates. And obviously he innovates in many different ways, but uh, he doesn't want to say I'm in a novel, you know, like, I mean, he, maybe he wants to say also that he does something new, but uh, what really gives him kudos and what really sets him up as the second Hippocrates is this uh, recourse to a classical authority. Yeah. And obviously this is something of uh, one of these examples which, uh, which uh, you must have in mind, is that yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking here mainly of uh, a non-European tradition of mm. classical medicine coming out of India in particular mm. and the Ayurvedic tradition, yes. which has many parallels with the sort of European Middle Eastern tradition that you're, that you're describing, where yeah. it has in origin separate roots. But there too, there is this particular emphasis upon Sanskrit yes. as the language in which these texts are originally produced, the role of commentators and interpreters at later stages mm-hmm. using those original works, 
citing the authority of those particular authors mm. in support of their arguments and so on. So we can think of the classical mm. tradition as something which is uh, embodied in particular authors and the reverence and respect paid to those particular mm. ancient authors. Mm. But it's also very striking that, by and large, these classical traditions are secular in character, that to a large extent, although they may occasionally invoke divine origins and divine sanction, in the main they're talking about a kind of rationality. Mm. And I think it's the internal rationality, the internal consistency, which contributes to the idea of these as being classical systems of medicine. Mm. So basically... Um yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting idea because uh, in the Greek tradition, I mean, obviously, Asclepius, as the god of healing, yep. is in the background. Uh, and, you know, like, even Galen says, you know, like, I mean, he probably still believes in God or God, the gods or whatever. Yep. But uh, he sets up Hippocrates as the central figure. Yep. And uh, so Galen is, becomes a central figure. Um, in philosophy, and, and, it's... Uh, and in the Indian tradition, mm. scholars often make a distinction between Vedic ideas... Mm of health and disease mm. and so on, and the, and the classical tradition. And the Vedic tradition embodied in those very early Sanskrit works yeah. is not so much about medicine as we would now understand it, mm. but about demons, about spirits, about semi-divine influences mm. one kind or another, uh, and about how you placate those mm. evil forces. Whereas when you move to the classical tradition, then it's much more about... You know, there may be a remote uh, divine origin to all these things, mm. but it's about the way in which certain diseases can be identified as having specific causes in the environment in which you live, in the humours within mm. your body, and that these things can be dealt with, mm. not so much by invoking gods or placating the gods in mm. certain ways, but by taking certain kinds of medicines, yes. obeying the, the, the strictures of the textual authority yes. of those classical so. works. So texts obviously play play a major role in uh, in this classicism, in this medical classicism. I mean, you mentioned this word canon and canonization. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the formation of medical canons is is a is a major process. I mean, if you look at the Greek world, uh, for instance, uh, so Galen sets up Hippocrates as an important authority in late antiquity. If we go to let's say the fifth, sixth century. A.D. to late antique Alexandria, we find that both Hippocrates and Galen have become canonical, that there are certain books, you know, like let's say the 16 books of Galen, which are studied in university, um, you know, like they are read, they're explained, they're summarized, and uh, so you have this body of knowledge which is, which, is, which is set up. And I believe that something similar happens also in India. Yes, but within the Ayurvedic tradition, mm. there are two or three authors mm. who are particularly revered. Mm. Uh, and their works are known mm. principally through their mm. Samhitas, through mm. their compilations. Mm. And uh, Sashrut and mm. uh, Karaka are mm. the two main figures which are invoked here. Mm. But that tradition is, is a living tradition, and there are still important medical works being produced mm. into the 14th, 15th, 16th mm. centuries. Yes. Uh, they may certainly uh, in, invoke the authority of those early mm. authors, but they are trying to add something of their own mm. to the understanding yeah, I wonder, for instance, if we look at the Islamic tradition, yeah. I mean, obviously it's based to a large extent on translations, mostly from of Greek medical texts, uh, but there are also some, I mean, like uh, Shushrota and uh, Jaraka's uh, companion, they also come, come into, uh, via Persian, come into the uh, Islamic tradition. And one of the things which happens there is that, 
at least in the rhetoric of certain elite physicians, you have this idea that in order to become a doctor, you need to be trained in a canon. So one of the things we have is HESPA manuals, manuals of market inspection. Mm -hmm. And uh, in some of these manuals, I mean, whether it was carried out or not, this is a different uh, issue. But in some of these manuals, people say, oh, if you want to do surgery, you should really be tested on the sixth book of Paul of Egina's yep. uh, yep. encyclopedia, which deals with surgery, yep. or you should really do this or this medical yep. text. I mean, so the texts kind of are, um, you know, like, um, give you the seal of approval. Yes. But I think it's important, at least in the Indian mm. tradition, which is the one I'm familiar with, it's important to recognise that the text is only part of this classical mm. tradition that we're dealing with. Uh, there is also a process by which you acquire a guru. Mm. I mean, you may actually be mm. a relation, the son mm. or nephew or whatever, mm. of the existing practitioner, but you may seek out a guru, someone who is uh, skilled and knowledgeable in these texts mm. and in the practice of medicine, and he then instructs you as a kind of apprentice mm. for several years, and often you live within his household, you learn by observing what he does, as well as by his detailed discussion of what particular texts mm. mean. So here the, the classical authority would be the guru and not uh, some remote figure? Well, it, it, it can be a mixture of the two, you see, yes. because he is partly saying that his authority is derived right. from these texts, yes. perhaps yeah. even going back Brexit, to Hippocrates yeah. or someone, yeah. But it's also saying, you know, I am your interpreter. Yeah. And this is the way in which the guru is always important. He interprets for you what the tradition means, as well as showing you by example how to do it and so on. Yeah. Uh, there, there also is a tradition in India of uh, schools, of tolls, yeah. in which a group of pupils would sit together while the uh, Ayurvedic physician went through the texts or told his pupils about how these things were done. So it, it's a hand-to-hand -hand tradition which is being right. passed on by uh, not lectures in a formal sense, but by discussion, by verbal presentation of ideas and practices, not just by resorting to the text alone. Mm. What new methodologies or what new aspects uh, of looking at medicine does this idea of classicism or classics in medicine bring us? I mean, how does it... Uh, I mean, is, is this, uh, how does it move the field forward? Uh, well, for me, this is a very interesting bringing together of two different sets of ideas, classicism and medicine. Mm. Because to my way of thinking, perhaps I speak in ignorance, mm. classicism is an idea rooted in the European and Middle Eastern tradition. Mm. That when we think of the classical world, we have a particular geographical space in mind and a certain set of historical and cultural events. In a sense, the idea of the classical is something which has been grafted onto the traditions of India, China, and other parts of the world. And it's therefore a very interesting question is what we mean when we say that India has a classical medical mm. tradition. Do we mean simply that it has a body of texts similar to those employed mm. in Hippocratic and Galenic medicine? Do we mean that at some point of time, we recognise that that tradition has direct parallels and similarities with the kind of model which we have of medicine as practised in Europe and the Middle East. Oh. And, and in fact, it's not until the uh, 19th century that the idea of classical medicine in India begins oh. to develop. Mostly the notion of classicism is applies first of all to a language, to Sanskrit, oh. and to the literature associated with oh. that. Only very gradually, and perhaps not until the 1940s, does Indian medicine seriously begin to be described as classical. 
Yes. And so, and it has to so, do... so to that extent, it's mm. fascinating mm. how a mm. pre-existing tradition mm. can find itself put in relationship mm. to something outside mm. itself. And in the Indian context, classicism means a number of different mm. things. It can mean something which is wonderful, sanctioned by antiquity, embodied in texts, mm. etc. But there's also a kind of qualification to that use of the term classical, i.e. maybe this is a literary tradition, maybe this is a cultural thing and not really about serious medicine which actually heals mm. people. Yes, uh, I mean if you look at uh, one aspect of Indian medicine that's Yunani medicine yes. as we now call it obviously. So Yunani medicine, I mean the word Yunani is uh, the Arabic word for Greek yeah. and as I understand it was a term invented maybe in the late 18th or early 19th century in order to give uh, the Muslim medical tradition which draws on Greek sources but also on, on uh, Arabic sources, you know, like I mean Greek sources and Arabic translation and Arabic sources which you know, like further develop these Greek sources. Uh, and this tradition, this Yunani tradition, um, uh, kind of uh, is you know like uh, important in uh, the, like the northern part of uh, the Indian subcontinent. And uh, in order to give it more you know like more prestige, uh, it calls itself Greek because this uh, then it uh, acquires, so to speak, uh, this uh, seal of uh, the classics. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, is is this a fair description? Yes, I, it, it's fascinating the kinds of terminology mm. which are applied to these different medical systems. Mm. Uh, I suppose in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they were mostly classed as indigenous mm. or traditional. Mm. And indigenous is often problematic, particularly in relation to the Unani tradition, mm. which to some extent was derived from outside of India. So mm. can you call it indigenous? Mm. The use of traditional tends to imply something which has got stuck at a particular point of time mm. and isn't particularly relevant to our present age. Yeah. So calling something classical, as is now often the case in the Indian context, seems to give it a, a different kind of status, something which elevates it mm. to a kind of timeless validity. Mm. And it's fascinating to my mind that since uh, 2004, the government, <clears throat> the government of India has set up a committee to investigate the claims of certain languages in India to be classical. Oh, so since yeah. 2004, certain languages in India have been officially designated classical languages. So Sanskrit is one? No, Sanskrit was the second. The first oh. was Tamil, oh, then Tamil. Sanskrit, oh. and then Kannada and Telugu. Uh -huh. And the idea is that these languages should have existed for at least a thousand years mm -hmm. and that they should represent independent and self-supporting cultural traditions. Oh. So a kind of notion of classicism as something which is very desirable, very ancient, mm. but very, in a sense, culturally and politically prominent has been embedded in that kind of government of India policy. Mm. It's, it's fascinating how yeah. classical has acquired in India that kind of status. Yeah. Great. I mean, we haven't talked much about uh, China, probably because yes. uh, neither, neither of us is, 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 is a sinologist. Yes. Uh, but um, obviously, um, you and I, we are organizing this conference uh, called Medicine and Classicism in a Comparative Perspective, which will be held on the 13th and 14th November at the Warburg Institute. And there we'll try also to get some sinologists uh, uh, in like uh, to our discussion or make them join our discussion uh, because even in China you have these uh, 
things like the inner canon of the Yellow Emperor. Mm. I mean, I can't pronounce it. Huang Di Nei Jing. I mean, probably I will now be slaughtered by the Sinologists. But I mean, like you have these classical texts in the Chinese tradition, which uh, which. Uh, perhaps fulfill a similar function to the classics in the Greek or in the Indian um, tradition. So this is something which we obviously want to explore during the conference. Maybe, David, you can say a bit more about uh, the conference and uh, uh, what we are doing and um, why it is interesting to attend. Well, the conference is essentially, as you've suggested, Peter, about medicine, medicine and classicism in a comparative way. Mm. So we are trying to look for similarities and contrasts mm. between these classical traditions. So there is an issue, first of all, as to how many classical traditions mm. we're talking about. Are we simply talking about those of ancient Europe and the Middle East? Mm. Can we equally talk about the traditions of China, India, Japan, and so on? Are these, in a sense, comparable kinds mm. of traditions? Do they have similar bodies of text? Mm. Do they speak to each other? Is mm. there a sense in which there is a, an oh, ongoing yeah, connection yeah. between mm. them? But I think we're also trying to discuss, by looking at these various uh, traditions, the, where, where we are as scholars mm. now. You know, are we, in a sense, saying that the classical tradition is something which belongs to classicists like yourself? Mm. But is it also something which anthropologists, historians... And other people are also absolutely mm. fascinated in investigating. Mm. Um, and we're asking questions in a way of what we mean by medicine. Do we mean simply a body of texts? Do we mean an ongoing set of practices? Do we mean by medicine something which has to be effective in our modern terms? Mm. Or are we simply saying, well, that's what they used to believe, <laughs> that's part of their tradition yeah. growing up? Yeah. So I think it raises real questions about who classicism and history belong to, who these medical traditions are of interest and relevance to, mm. and how do we begin to compare and contrast them yeah. across the whole of Eurasia and yeah. beyond. And uh, that's it. I mean, we have people, for instance, uh, like Vivian Nutten and Helen King, who will talk about the Greek tradition. We have people like um, Pauline Kutschi and Anne-Marie Moulin, who will, who will tackle, uh, and Miri Sheffer, who will tackle uh, the uh, Middle Eastern material. We have others uh, like um, Guy Atterwell, yourself, uh, who will talk about India. And then we have uh, Vivian Law and uh, Volkmar Scheidt, uh, um, who will talk uh, about China. And finally, even one scholar, Ronit Tlalim, uh, who will talk about Tibet. So we really stretch uh, a whole area. And we know in certain instances there was dialogue. This was not, uh, they were not kind of hermetically sealed traditions. So it will be very interesting during this conference to explore uh, these questions which you've just described. And uh, we cordially invite everybody to come to the Warburg Institute. Uh, and um, there's a, a link on the website, uh, or you can just uh, Google classicism and medicine in a comparative perspective and you will find us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure.